thanks everyone. I know it's trying to get home. So those of you who have come out to not study and listen to the seminar, I appreciate it. And uh, as I said, I'm doing my Bible in a few weeks' time. So I'm really using you as proxy examiners today. Please, you know, come up with some nice, hard-hitting questions for me so that Bible is nice and, nice and easy. So I'm going to give you an overview of my doctoral work very briefly, and then I'm going to focus on one aspect of the, uh, the thesis for the rest of the program. Uh, but um, I encourage you to ask me widely around my thesis if something comes up that you, you want to talk about in the question time. Okay, so the focus of my research in the last couple of years has been uh, this mandate in the global nutrition community to focus nutrition interventions on what is called the first thousand days of life. So this period between conception and the age of two years. So trying to focus nutrition interventions in pregnancy and in early infancy. And the idea that we should be doing this has arisen from research in fields of developmental origins of health and disease, or DOHAD for short, and epigenetics. So some of you may be familiar with the formative work of David Barker and his colleagues in the 80s, uh, where they found these early life associations or associations between early life conditions and adult health outcomes like cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, and what we might call non-communicable disease or NCDs more generally. So um, in the last two decades, these correlations have been proven in a number of populations and this research field was formalized into the, the DOHAD um, body of research. Um, and as of the 2008-2010, this idea has really started to inform nutrition policy uh, globally. So it's been taken up by the UN, by the WHO, and is now part of a number of nation states' um, nutrition policies, including South Africa, where I am from. So my own interest in nutrition-related chronic disease stems from my work as a clinician in South Africa. Um, and so what I did for my, my doctoral work is actually follow this thousand days idea through the way it's been implemented in South African nutrition policy to its implementation in two clinics in Kailicha, which I'll introduce you to in a bit. Um, and uh, I, I had kind of three large research questions that I looked at for this. Um, firstly, I was very interested in the, the values behind this idea. Um, what is being foregrounded when we focus on this period for interventions and for resources, and what is being overlooked. So it's not to say this is a good or bad idea, but trying to map what that means um, in terms of resource allocation. Um, I was also interested in the way that this idea about investing now for the future reformulates notions of risk, um, and particularly reformulates them to into thinking more about potential. So it's much more of a positive intervention in a way, um, but really, really uh, kind of continues this development idea about investing in the future. Um, and I was very interested with how that might align with ideas of potential and the future in my field side. And then thirdly, what I'm going to focus on for the talk today, um, I was very interested in what this actually looked like materially. So what does it mean to focus on the first thousand days? What does it mean for clinical practice? What does it mean for implementation? And I took an STS lens to think about this question and examine the indices, measurements, protocols that are actually the material uh, side of this um, intervention. So where did I do this work? Um, I conducted 15 months of field work in 
Kailicha, which is in the Western Cape province of South Africa, at the tip of Africa. Um, and I spent five months of that time just in, in two clinics in this informal settlement. Um, so you can see Kailicha over here, and there's Central Cape Town. Um, so Kailicha is the largest informal settlement in Cape Town. Um, it was formed in 1983 by the then apartheid state. The idea being that the government wanted to consolidate the black African population some distance from the urban centre. Um, and um, since 1994 and the onset of democracy, the movement of peoples has obviously been lifted and Kailicha has not only become a landing spot for people moving from elsewhere in South Africa to urban Cape Town, but also from elsewhere in Africa. So today, if you look at the census data, it will say there are 400,000 people living there. Researchers would say it's more closer to a million. It's actually very difficult to quantify how many people live there because there's a formal center, but then there's a huge sprawling informal periphery. Um, so why conduct this research there? Um, first of all, um, I've worked as a clinician in, this, uh, in these settings for some time. I had access to this field site, but more importantly, the health profile of Kailicha really typifies the focus of the first thousand days. So it's trying to um, really kill two birds with one stone. If you intervene in early life, in pregnancy and uh, early childhood, then you can mitigate childhood undernutrition, but you're also, with the DOHAD logic, potentially mitigating against adult chronic disease. In Kailicha, we have one in four children who are stunted, and we have an obesity rate of close to 50% in women and 20% in men. So that dual burden is very much represented. Um, and as of 2013 in South Africa, the nutrition policy has very much explicitly focused on this first thousand day window. So what does that actually mean? What does that look like in terms of uh, the package of nutritional interventions that are being rolled out in the clinics? So as you can see here, the majority of the nutrition interventions, which form part of the national policy, are focused on pregnancy and infancy. We've got a therapeutic feeding scheme for pregnant women and small children who are classified as undernourished, and a lot of behavior change interventions around maintaining optimal weights in pregnancy, breastfeeding, complementary feeding, etc. So we're going to focus on the first two aspects of the policy in this talk. Um, the feeding scheme and the nutrition education for maintaining weight in pregnancy. So how it works is a pregnant woman comes to one of the primary healthcare clinics in Kailicha. So in South Africa we have a district healthcare system, there are uh, primary care clinics in the, in the communities and then they will refer either to district hospitals or secondary or tertiary level hospitals based on the level of care required. There's also a private healthcare system but that's um, I've not studied that. So a pregnant woman attends the clinic and on arrival for her first booking visit, her body mass index and her mid-upper arm circumference will be measured um, and that will determine um, whether she falls into one or other category. So this is actually from the protocol. This isn't my slide that I've made. This, I've taken this out of the protocol. And what you can see here is a BMI less than 18.5, a MUAC less than 23, classifies this woman as malnourished. Interestingly, that terminology has changed over the course of the last few years, so that malnourishment now, mal malnutrition now includes obesity in the South African nutrition policy remit. But when I looked at it in 2014, this is um, how it was framed. 
And though the, the people categorized as malnourished will be referred to the nutrition therapeutic feeding scheme, right? Anyone who has a BMI over 40 is classified as obese or overweight. Again, very interesting and interchangeable use of these terms. And also, you might notice the BMI cutoff is quite high, it's 40, which um, is a very good example of indices being molded according to local situations and constraints. So in the case of antenatal care in South Africa, any woman classified as obese classifies as a higher risk pregnancy and would therefore need to be referred for tertiary care. And because of the volume of patients who would then classify according to a normal BMI criteria in an international sense, the cutoff is actually made higher. Um, so, so we've got these two, two arms of the, of the policy. So let's start with the nutrition therapeutic feeding scheme. So what happens uh, is a pregnant woman who is classified as undernourished uh, will receive food supplementation in the form of fortified porridges, milkshakes, and peanut paste. Um, and I've put the slider of the company that makes these products in South Africa. This company is based in Cape Town. Um, and I'm pointing this out specifically because it's very interesting the way that they frame what we call ready-to-use therapeutic food is very different from elsewhere on the African continent. So according to this website, um, these products aim to cater to both the nutraceutical market in South Africa, there's a very large middle class market for these products in pharmacies, um, and also to nutrition crisis zones around the world. And of course, they also have a government tender to supply these products to um, the public sector. Um, so what's very interesting about this is that these products are being used in a very different register to the way RUTFs are used elsewhere. So looking at the work of Peter Redfield, Tom Scott Smith, and Darrell Starmer, who you'll see next week, RUTFs are very much used in the register of emergency palliative or humanitarian emergency. In this case, this company, as you can see in this quote here, are operating in another logic. These RUTFs are being used uh, because of their potential long-term benefits regarding prevention of degenerative diseases of the lifestyle. Um, so they're very much buying into this logic of intervening now with the hope that this will have an outcome well into the future. And what's interesting about that logic is that it's, it's an economic logic. So what we're going to come back to at the end is very different concepts of life and work and how these products are used in these different settings. Okay, so a woman who arrives at the clinic and is categorized as undernourished will be enrolled in the Nutrition Therapeutic Program Register. And I was able to review these registers across the two clinics where I worked. They had data as of around 2012, so I could look at about two and a half years of registered data. And what happens is that patients enrolled and they will be on the program for six months. And each month they come to the clinic and they wait and they work um, or they hike for length of their child is measured and enrolled in the figures put in this register. And then at the end of six months, the patient is assigned an exit code. And these are the possible exit codes the patient could receive. The patient could be successful. They've had adequate weight gain and they're discharged from the program. We're not sure what happens to their weight after that. They could be unsuccessful, inadequate weight gain, despite attending every month for six months, and they would then be referred to a dietitian. They could be classified as an interrupter or defaulter which meant that they missed a couple of months in the six-month period. And then they could not be re-entered into the program unless they'd seen a dietitian. 
They could be referred early or they could be dismissed. Fortunately, in my review of these registers, I didn't find any deceased patients, but I also found hardly any referred patients and hardly any unsuccessful patients. So approximately 25% of the people in the register were assigned an S exit code. They adequately gained weight and they were discharged from the program. What was interesting is that close to three quarters of the patients <coughs> in the register had been assigned an I code. So they had uh, defaulted from the program. So this is a very high number and I was quite curious and had a number of interviews across the, the clinics with the staff. And they had a number of reasons why they thought this might be the case. So first of all, there was this idea that the patient doesn't want to attend for another service. They want to come for the antenatal care and then they don't want to queue for the supplementation and therefore they go home and they default. Another staff member thought that there was potentially a stigma about receiving food from the clinic. He used the word food. But the most common explanation across interviews was that this was the result of frequent stockouts, stock shortages. And the most uh, extensive shortage being between March and August 2014. So that's five months where they actually had no stock these food supplements. So as you can see from this um, excerpt from my interview with Sister Adebe, patients come, they're told, told that they, um, there's no supplementation available, but that they need to stay on the program. So they need to come back next month to make sure if the stock has arrived or not. And of course, often people don't do that. They're not going to come back month after month. And as he says, sometimes this causes interruption. Um, so, let's just go. So, in my interviews with staff, they were really at a loss as to how to explain what to do um, because what we have here is a quite troubling situation. The patients are actually penalised for a system which is essentially dysfunctional because stock hasn't arrived, they need to see a dietitian if they've actually missed an appointment. Just to give you an idea about seeing a dietitian in the context of these clinics, the dietitian comes once a month, they see approximately 10 patients on that day, and there's a very long waiting list. So it's actually not that easy to get back on the program once you've interrupted. So let's go to an account of one of my informants, whose name is Inam. Um, Inam was a very interesting case because she was actually the most well-off of all of my informants. She was trained as a journalist, she was working for a media company in Cape Town, um, and when she enrolled for her antenatal care, they said, you know what, you're a bit underweight. And she told me that she'd always been a bit skinny, she was a bit of a fussy eater, she was a vegan, you know, um, quite um, uh, uh, advanced in her ideas about what, what was good and not good to eat. Um, but she decided she would follow the sister's advice and take these supplements. She said, though, you can taste the medication in there. She thought they, they weren't very palatable. But um, she'd take all of the supplementation home anyway, and often it would end up being eaten by the children in the house or her mother. Or, so these food supplements had a kind of afterlife after the clinic, even though she was not always using them when she received them. Okay, so... Let's move on to the other side of the equation. The women who arrive and they receive nutrition and lifestyle modification counseling because they are normal weights or obese or overweight. Now, I interviewed staff across the two clinics about um, this package and it was part of protocol and part of their mandate to offer this health and nutrition education to all these clients. But 
Many of the healthcare workers were acutely aware of what one of them referred to as the socioeconomic conditions in Kailicha. So they were very aware of the disjunctions between what they were advising patients, including eat fresh fruit and vegetables, eat lean protein, eat some dairy, avoid uh, processed food, get some exercise, and what was actually possible given the constraints of life in Kailicha. And they dealt with this disjuncture in a number of ways. Uh, so sometimes they'd, they'd, they'd make suggestions around buying foods that are potentially less expensive, like lentils, for example, which would still classify as healthy, but not that expensive. But for the most part, um, they, would, they would frame the socioeconomic problems of their patients up as outside of the remit of the clinic. They'd become very boundaried around what was within the remit of what the clinic could offer. So, Here's some of their, their accounts of this. So Sister Rodeve, I think, put it very succinctly. He said, this environment is not therapeutic. Um, the patients are going to have all of these problems because there's no sanitation, there's no refuge removal, people are unemployed, they're food insecure. So, you know, we're meeting out this program, but actually we know that it's, it's not that workable in the setting. And a lot of the staff members use the word poverty to describe the situation in Kailicha but they were quite hesitant to do so. It was almost as if they were telling me a little secret when they used that, that word. Um, but uh, they continually framed it like that. And I think that's interesting because poverty as a word, as Kilbert has argued in the Indian setting, is a word that is able to obscure a structural violence to make its bureaucratic management unexceptional. So it was a platitude that was trotted out uh, many a time. Um, there was also a quite frequent allusion to the social worker as the person who would be able to help uh, with these particular situations. So, to be honest, we have nothing here. We can't do anything for these patients. Um, one of the doctors said, all I can do is advise them. Tell them the risks of what they are eating. But at the end of the day, honestly, there's really nothing I can do for them. Um, others made quite unrealistic suggestions about taking whatever you have at home, just, just make that the meal. Um, so, for example, one of the sisters advised that um, women put oil into the parts just to up the calorific intake for their children. It's not such a bad idea, but what I'm trying to point out here is that it's so far from the ideal of the nutrition and health package that they've really narrowed it down to a quite um, uh, simplified and um, inadequate version of what the protocol actually suggests they do. So let's, let's take the example of Cindy, who was in the other, the other category. Um, Cindy was categorized as normal weights, and she received this nutrition and lifestyle counseling. Um, and she described to me an immense frustration with being, having this advice meted out to her. And she said, you know, it's just a matter of money. If I had money, I would do whatever I want to do, and eat whatever I want to do. And interestingly, Cindy was aware of the deficiencies her diet might, might have, and so she took what she called a supplement. She didn't use the term vitamin uh, or uh, medication. She used the term supplements, which I think is interesting given that's how the clinic frames what, what they're meeting out as well. Um, and she said, you know, th th these things are just not accessible to us. If I had money, I would limit my food intake. I'd eat smaller portions. So the language of the policy, she's, she's, she's repeating that to me. She knows exactly what they're asking her to do. And yet she's saying this is really quite uh, difficult in the context of my constraints. 
So there's this disjuncture between what is being advised and what the daily realities of life of Kailicha are. Um, but on the one hand, we could say, well, you know, these staff members, they're just meeting our hollow statements. But I can empathize with the staff having worked in these settings for some time. Actually, working in these conditions is actually really challenging. There is staff shortages, there's stock shortages, there's a huge patient volume, um, inefficiencies in the system just abound. But what I, what I think is quite interesting is that the idea that the system is inefficient and that idea gets constantly reiterated is an, yet another reason to just make the clinical mandate incredibly narrow and just fulfill this one thing so that one can move on to the next thing. And what that has a tendency to do um, when one keeps boundary, bound, boundary going around the socioeconomic situation is to often route responsibility back to the client. So as one of the sisters put it, I can only do what I can, and all I can do is explain to the client. So um, there's that aspect of it. And then at the same time, these staff did try to navigate around the protocol and make it the best plan for the patient. Which brings me to this idea that I, I've kind of thought about, um, which I'm calling the pragmatics of care. Um, so despite the feelings of helplessness and frustration that the staff described to me, at times there were also moments where you could see that they were really trying to make a plan given the resource constraints, trying to navigate around the protocol so as to maximally benefit the patient. So in terms of these referral criteria to the, the food supplementation program, the nursing staff were willing to be a little bit flexible on, the, on, those, um, on those numbers. If someone was on the edge or if one of their measurements meant that they could be referred, then they, they would err on the side of referring. Because even in the face of the stockouts, when there was stock available, there was an understanding that this was not just supplementing people's diets. This was dispensing food to a community that actually is quite food insecure. Um, the other thing that would, would happen and was explained to me by a number of staff members was that when stock was running low, then a plan would be made to ration stock amongst the patients who were enrolled on the program so that everyone would get a little bit of something rather than a few people getting what the protocol had uh, described they should get. Um, and I think what was also interesting about this is that the staff were very supportive of each other in the way that they, they kind of undertook this. Um, and this became very evident in an interview with one of the doctors who conducted the audits of the programs and um, things taking place in the clinic. And he, he was very clear, he was like, well, you know, the folder might score badly, but actually people aren't doing such a bad job. They're doing the best that they can. Um, and he engaged in what Tanner Brown has ultimately called empathetic bureaucracy. So we're going to do this audit, we're going to run through these kind of management principles, but we know that actually, you know, people are doing okay, and they're doing their best, and um, so we're not going to worry too much about when the audit actually indicates that things are not going so well. So, I mean, what uh, Hannah Brown has, has spoken about there is that management is not just about tools and techniques, but also about social relations, such that it comprises both governance and care. Um, so the management activities are themselves inherently relational. Um, on the one hand, it looks like people are kind of making these renouncements around what they're able to do, and on the other hand, there's this kind of 
web of subversive care relations at work holding the whole thing together. Um, and this is something that people have written about in other contexts, of course. So Judy Livingston has the beautiful word of improvisation to describe this in her work in an oncology ward in Botswana. Um, Frederick Lamassi and Julian Girard have worked in the uh, north of South Africa in, in, in hospitals there. And they were very interested in this image of the defaulting patient, which they describe as offering an opportunity to actually withdraw care. There was a legitimacy to withdrawing care if someone defaulted, which again is very much the case in my field site. Um, and then of course Akhil Gupta's, Gupta's work in the Indian setting, he's spoken about uncaring, uh, which um, is integral to the functioning of the state, he argues, such that violence may actually be inflicted at the site of care. So the pragmatics of care, I would argue, include that care has limits, that care has its own politics. Some staff would engage with this question different, in a different way to which other staff would engage this question. Um, and that, as Lemosian and Girard pointed out, care can be viewed as a form of situated ethics. So in observing the different responses of staff to this question, one can observe what we might call the ethical. I think what was most uh, um, impressed the most on me in my field site was this intense contradiction that on the one hand you have a group of people who have entered the healthcare profession. They have entered work which is supposed to alleviate suffering. And yet they were often working to unknow, to use Pencil Bias's term, the suffering that could not be alleviated by means of the protocol. So, life between protocols. Alright, so what I think is interesting about this work is that we can talk about protocols in the way that SDS scholars have spoken about them um, as having a local universality. So, the protocol is obviously always implemented according to the local set of conditions in which it's being enacted. So that's um, Timmermans and Berg's um, phrase. Universality always rests on real-time work and emerges from local processes of negotiation, pre-existing institutional, infrastructural, material relations. So on the one hand, this seems highly self-evident. Uh, for policy to be enacted, the actor has to interpret it, and he has to use his discretion to best apply it in his context. And given that a standardized protocol cannot make provision for all contingencies, healthcare work is necessarily about this constant negotiation between a formal policy and clinical pragmatism. Great. Um, but I think there's something more going on here. This is not a straight-up account of global policy, local reality which us as anthropologists really like, like, to, like to, to examine. I think there's something more here which I'm term terming life between protocols. And I'm using that in a number of registers. First of all, there's this space that we might describe as duly characterized by these pragmatic forms of care and by this knowing not to know when care is impossible to extend. But this protocol is also mapping onto a very specific socio-political setting in South Africa. And this really comes up in this kind of tension between this idea of food, what is a supplement, what is a pharmaceutical. And that's quite closely onto what we might call a citizen, a patient, or a client. 
So for those of you who are not familiar with South Africa, um, James Ferguson uses the term neoliberal welfare states to describe what's going on in South Africa. So there are a group of people who are eligible for state support. Close to 17 million receive a, um, a kind of state grant, right? Um, and then there are another group of people who are not eligible for that support, who are very much cast in this kind of classic neoliberal self-making um, uh, individual mold. So what we have in the nutrition policy is actually a very interesting mirror of that set of, of um, conditions. On the one hand, we have the undernourished pregnant woman who is seen as vulnerable and who is referred for access to state resources. In this case, food supplementation, which in the context of Kailicha is actually a household's, often their only source of, of food in some cases. And then we have the other group of people who are equally food insecure, but who are classified as normal weight or overweight, and who are offered this moral prescription around what they should uh, be doing in terms of their diet and exercise, and are very much molded in the self-making self citizen. So inclusion or exclusion from state care rests on more than citizenship. And I would argue, as I have done in my thesis, that it is predicated on certain forms of intimacy that are seen as worthy, i.e. the mother-child dyad, um, and it's also predicated on notions of agency. And this logic configures the distribution of resources and the way that institutions are tasked with dealing with that, which means, uh, in their direct way, that the staff can actually boundary around what they would call the socioeconomic factors um, and can unknow the hunger in the category of people who would be classified as normal or overweight um, on the premise that nothing can be done. But there's another aspect to life between protocols which brings us back to my object of study, the first thousand days. So the first thousand days logic in these um, uh, with these pregnant women who are advised to do certain things, take certain supplements, etc., etc., is not just a logic around taking care of oneself. It is a logic that extends to a future citizen uh, who is also endowed with human capital and a future patient or client whose own biological risk will be attenuated by the use of these ready-to-use therapeutic foods or by this pregnant woman following health advice. So. What's interesting here is that the different concepts of life that are at work in the policy and in the way the policy is implemented. So in terms of the global policy, um, we have life as sacred, life as investment, life as the future. Um, and on the ground, we have the distribution of care and resources on the basis of metrics which evaluate lives very differently based on body mass indices, middle arms conference measurements which determine level of access to care, to food supplementation, or to this health and nutrition education package. So I'm going to leave it there as, and leave that as a set of provocations, really. Um, and we've got a little bit of time before we need to run to test this paper. So it would be great to get your thoughts and ideas. As I said, you're allowed to be totally brutal because it will prepare me <laughs> for my fiber. So thanks very much. Thank you.